Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is God's word. Thank you, Carrie, for reading. Let's pray again as we open God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you as we are hearing that you are our fortress, God. You are a very near and present help. Pray, God, that everyone who hears my voice would trust in you as their fortress, that you would be our confidence in the highs and lows of life, when things are good and when things are turbulent. Help my words in this message to be useful and helpful to your people, Westgate. May it all move us, God, to love and trust you more. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get started in the Psalms, I have the pleasure of setting the table. You know, as I did with Mark, I want to prepare us for what we're reading because Again, if we're not familiar with the kind of genre we're dealing with, then we can end up making wrong interpretations. Jesus tells us that God does not, excuse me, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, which to say God's word is our spiritual sustenance. Eating up God's word is as essential to healthy living as eating three meals a day. Well, when you eat your meals, you know what utensils to use. When you go to eat pizza, you're not grabbing chopsticks. When you go to eat a sandwich, you don't grab a bowl, throw it in there, and then get a spoon. We learn that certain foods require certain tools to eat them, and when we approach God's Word to be fed by it, we need to understand the type of text we're reading so that we use the right interpretive tools. So with that said, very quickly, here's six things to keep in mind as we approach the Psalms. We're going to spend our time in the Psalms this summer. The first thing to point out is that we are dealing with poetry. And if you're familiar with poetry, you know that there are certain literary patterns to look for. In Hebrew, the most important poetic feature is something called parallelism. So for example, the first line of Psalm 46 reads, God is our refuge and strength. 
That's one line. And the parallel line after reads, a very present help in trouble. And as the name suggests, parallelism is the art of saying something similar in both lines. But with that example, to say God is our refuge and our help are parallel things. They are similar but not exactly the same. But together they tell us something about God. That's parallelism. And now that you know that, if you didn't know it already, you will see that literary feature on every page of the Psalms. It's why the Psalms are laid out differently than a gospel or a letter. Now, while the Psalms are poetic and use parallelism, we can't conclude that all Psalms are the same. While it's all poetry, the tone and purpose of a particular Psalm can vary, and scholars debate how many kinds of psalms there are, but the major kinds would include things like hymns, laments, thanksgiving, and kingship psalms. But beyond that, you also have psalms of remembrance, of confidence, wisdom, and more. Another crucial poetic feature is the use of imagery. Images are one of those interpretive tools that help make sense of the meaning of a verse. So for example, in the very first psalm, we see there's two images contrasted, trees and chaff. Trees are planted, strong, bear fruit. Chaff is like dust. It gets blown away. It has no life. And with those images, the psalmist compares the righteous and the wicked. And one more poetic feature to note is that the psalms are emotional. They are emotional in two ways. You can see it in the text, and you can feel it from the text. You can read the psalmist speak of joy, grief, anger, comfort. But not only do our eyes read the page, the psalms are intended to evoke something in us. And it can be uncomfortable to display or evaluate emotion, but if we want to receive God's psalms for all they're worth, we have to include them, pay attention to them. A pair of scholars who wrote a really helpful book on interpretation had this to say about the psalms. They say, honesty with God is an important lesson we can learn from the psalms. The psalmist tells God exactly how they feel, and it often does not sound very mature. Christians today tend to pressure each other into suppressing an emotional outpouring to God. The Psalms shatter this false image of Christian behavior and provide us with wonderful models of frank, honest communication with God full of emotion, bubbling up out of good and bad times alike. The Psalms are emotional. The final things to consider about the Psalms are its purpose and message. The purpose of the Psalms is to instruct God's people on how to experience life. This year, the youth group spent the whole year in the Psalms, and the title for our series was simply Psalms for Every Season. And one of my Moody professors writing a book on the Psalms gave it, uh, understood it as language for all seasons of the soul. What those titles are getting at is that the Psalms They're purposed for all of life. When we experience joy, pain, happiness, or anger, there is a psalm for you. And isn't it wonderful that whatever range of emotion we feel, that the scriptures give us language to express that range of emotion. God has given the psalms to instruct us on how to live through those highs and lows of life. And not only does it instruct us, the message of the psalms is that God is our king. And as our king, the Psalms will display for us that God, what he's accomplished in the past, how he rules over the present, and what he will bring 
in the future. And the single most repeated command of the Psalms is to praise the Lord. You'll find that repeated all over the Psalms. And with all that said, let's now turn to Psalm 46. I hope you kept that open there in your Bibles. And as we shift our focus, I want us to think about Florida. It kind of feels like that today. As I slowly work on my degree, I've been flying down to Orlando just two weeks out of the year to attend classes uh, at my seminary. And something you learn pretty quickly is that Orlando is very different from Metro West. Uh, Again, the most noticeable difference uh, is the weather. You know, I'm going to be heading down there soon here in July, and I am not looking forward to being outside. Every, every July I've gone down, the heat and humidity is unbearable. It's so hot, and nothing about that heat is enjoyable to me. However, when I go to class in January, and I get to escape our New England winter for a week, that's pretty great. I see why people do that. The weather of Florida, like anywhere else, has its pros and cons. Something else about the weather that stuck out to me when I first visited was seeing all these evacuation routes on my way to school. Because as you know, if you're a resident of Florida, something you have to think about are hurricanes, these massive storms that have the power to destroy homes and neighborhoods. And just last year, Hurricane Ian threatened Florida, And thankfully, it reduced to a tropical storm. But at peak of powers, government agencies record that Hurricane Ian created winds clocking in as high as 155 miles an hour. And that when it initially made contact with the Florida coast, it produced winds of 150 miles an hour. And before that storm hits, there are many government agencies and personnel preparing people for what's to come. They do their best based on the data that they have to give guidance. Now, I know next to nothing about how it all works, but I do know that some of the guidance that a government will give will be to shelter in place or to evacuate if needed. You know, depending on where someone is located and where they predict the storm will move, they may give particular guidance. But at whatever stage things are at, when a dangerous storm approaches, you will hear the call to seek shelter. And my task this morning is to issue that same call, to seek shelter. In our broken, fallen world, we continue to face storms. There is hostility against God and His church. We see and know of sickness that has hurt us and loved ones. There are all sorts of emotional strains that people can face. But despite all the turmoil and hurt of a fallen world, and what it brings. If God is your fortress, you don't need to fear. You can be still and find comfort that God is always near, because there is no safer place, no greater security, than to have God as your refuge. We're going to take our passage in three parts, and we'll start with verses one to three. But again, before we get into it, just as a contextual note, you'll see that in your Bibles, uh, typically what's included are these subheadings or titles. <clears throat> they may provide historical details. You know, some will suggest, for example, that a psalm was written during a specific point in David's life. However, there's reason to suggest that those subheadings were added later on. And to borrow from one of my Hebrew professors, it's best to view these subheadings as you know, canonical, but not necessarily original. So there is significance to them. 
And what it means for us is that we should still see the contextual content as significant, right? But our interpretation of Psalms shouldn't hang on the subheadings. Now, with Psalm 46, we see that it was a song. It was used for worship. And while we can't be certain, it is likely that this psalm was written during times of trouble. Look at verses 1 to 3 with me again. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The main principle, the main truth of Psalm 46 is there in verse 1. God is our refuge. God is our help. And although poetic, there's still a logic that we can follow. You know, verses 1 and 2 reminds me of what I've learned in some preaching classes. You know, my professors have pointed out that for young preachers like myself, sometimes we get caught up in being theologically and scripturally precise. And for good reason, right? We want to make sure that what we are saying is sound. But the trouble is when young preachers devote all their attention to precision at the expense of practice. Now, I may preach a sermon that is theologically accurate, exegetically thorough, but if that's all it is, my professors would ask me, so what? So what? And they ask that question because the Bible is not given to God's people simply to fill our heads. As we read elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible is given to us for teaching, correction, training in righteousness, and so much more. And what we see in verses 1 and 2 is that the psalmist, he didn't need to go to seminary. The truth principle is that God is our refuge. In the practice, the response in light of that truth is that we need not fear. And as the verses go on, remember we said that imagery is an important feature of poetry. Look at the imagery described. Verses 2 and 4. Will not fear, though the earth gives way. Mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains tremble at its swelling. What's the danger here? It's the water. It's the sea. It devours whole mountains. It roars and foams like a predator. And the mountains that remain tremble because the sea pounds on them with every crashing wave. And the sea is intentionally chosen as this big bad enemy because, as one scholar states, in many ancient cultures of the Old Testament, the raging sea was an image used to portray chaotic and seemingly uncontrollable things. But in Psalm 46, the psalmist refers to this well-known image of chaos to show us how much security God's people can have if he's their refuge. Mountains may tremble, but God's people will not. Mountains can tremble, but God's people don't need to. And when we hear that some of us might be skeptical of it, some of you might ask, isn't it foolish to disregard fear altogether? Shouldn't we take precaution when disaster strikes? And to that I say, yes, we need to take action. Although we are called not to fear when disaster strikes, it doesn't mean we're supposed to do nothing. But those questions kind of miss the point. It is an incredible thing, hard in fact, not to cave to fear when disaster comes our way. But the command here is not meant to highlight the one who would carry out the command, but to highlight how great God is. To have God as your refuge is to dwarf your greatest fears. It's to put them in perspective. This is one reason why having God as your fortress is so important. 
Because if he is, then whatever your fears are and however you feel threatened by them, you must ask yourself, is what I am fearful of enough to threaten God? Is what I am fearful of enough to threaten God? Because that's what my fears are up against. If God is my refuge. I want to stress how important it is that God is your refuge because ultimate security is found in God alone. If God is not your refuge, then we do have cause for fear. This is something everyone needs to hear. If our ultimate security is placed in other things, then we are at risk. Both believers and unbelievers alike have this problem. The problem being that we place our security in things like our wealth, our health, our family, our status, our position. You know, that list goes on. If there is something we possess that leads us to believe that it grants us greater security than God can, then we need to examine that thing and compare it to God, to size it up. Because when we do, we should, we should see that comparing earthly securities against God is like comparing a marble to a skyscraper. And I don't say that to belittle your health, your wealth, your family, or whatever is on that list, but again, to magnify how much greater and safe God is. But without belittling those things, we should be realistic. Notice that whatever we are tempted to find our ultimate security in, they are a lot more fragile than they appear. Wealth is not guaranteed. Health can fail us. Family can hurt us. Status is fleeting. The youth group already heard this illustration, but to compare God to anything else for ultimate security is like comparing a bouncy house to a bunker. Technically, you can seek shelter in either of those things, but our bouncy houses are just a few punctures away from caving in. In this life, Jesus says, moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Everything has an expiration date. James, in his letter, tells us that we cannot even boast about tomorrow. Straightforward when he writes, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And the same could be said for the things that we place our trust in. But if God is our fortress, then to borrow Peter's words, our security is based on what is imperishable undefiled and unfading. So two takeaways for you at this point. If God is not your refuge, if you have been tempted to seek shelter elsewhere, then the first step is to find shelter in God. Don't get comfortable in your bouncy house. Come to the bunker. and God will give you protection. The other takeaway we talked about already, it's that principle and practice. I'll state it to you this way. God is our refuge. So don't fear. God is our refuge, so don't fear. And it's a lot easier said than done, but at the very least, know that if God is your refuge, fear doesn't hold the power to dominate your life. It doesn't hold the power. God is our refuge. But not only is he our refuge, as verse 1 says, he is a very present help in trouble. And that second half of verse 1 is something our next section leans into. Look at verses 4 to 7 with me. Keep moving on here. Verse 4, There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. 
God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. As we begin verse 4, we see that the city of God becomes the focus. And for the people of Israel, this would have carried special significance. It was quite common to find reference to the city of Jerusalem with designations like Zion or Mount Zion. But as we see here, the significance of the city is not necessarily its location or history, but that it is described as the very dwelling place of God. There are a couple ways the psalmist describes God's presence here. We know in verse 4, it's his holy habitation. In verse 5, it mentions that God is in the midst of the city. And in verse 7, we hear the repeated refrain we'll encounter again, that the Lord is with us. And I don't want to belabor this point too much. I've talked about it before, and I could just talk about it all day. But I'll quickly say, again, a major theme of the Bible is God's unwavering intent to dwell with his people. Right? From Genesis to Revelation, we see God with his people in the garden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in Christ, God incarnate, and now by his spirit in the church. And we look forward to the day when he's with us again, when all is set right. Now, as we read Psalm 46 and consider how it relates to that broader biblical theme, what we notice is something we intuitively understand, which is that if we want to know ultimate security, we need to be in close proximity to God. The first line of verse 5 gets at this. It says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now, the ESV translate that final Hebrew verb as moved, which is perfectly adequate, but to give you a sense of how others will translate it, the NIV will say, she will not fail. CSB says, she will not be toppled. To give you one more, it's quite interesting, the NLT will, it doesn't even preserve the poetic imagery, it just gets to the meeting. They say, God dwells in that city, it cannot be destroyed. From the very break of dawn, God will protect it. You know, and I focused on verse 5 because, again, if we want security, close proximity to God is required. The psalmist can say this city will not be moved, toppled, or destroyed because it's where God is. And this immovable city of God stands in contrast to the world we read of in verse 6. In verse 6 we read the whole nations are being toppled. But for those who inhabit God's city with him, they are safe. Reflecting on this verse, John Calvin says, if we desire to be protected by the hand of God, we must be concerned above all things that he may dwell among us. For all hope of safety depends upon his presence alone. Now for us to make sense of this text and to apply it to our lives, we need to do a little theological work. And I want to attempt to do this by clarifying what ultimate security is. Ultimate security Ultimate security is everlasting life. It is the preservation of life forever. Now, having God as our refuge may include present security from natural disasters, sickness, spiritual warfare, and more. But our ultimate security is that no matter what, even if we die, that is not the end for us. This is something that the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism describes so well, and I'll read a portion of it so good. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, 
to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it ends by saying, because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me, assures me of eternal life. I bring this up because we need to consider Psalm 46 in light of the whole Bible. When we encounter New Testament passages about our ultimate security, it's not uncommon for Paul, it's not uncommon common for Paul to mention God's security for us and God's proximity to us. For time's sake, we won't turn there, but I'm thinking about passages like Romans 8:11, Ephesians 1:13, 2 Corinthians 5:5. There's one more time, Romans 8, 11, Ephesians 1, 13, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. In those passages, what we read is that the Holy Spirit that indwells believers is the very Spirit that guarantees everlasting life. The Spirit that indwells is the Spirit that guarantees everlasting life. That's the link between security and proximity. The spirit that dwells within us is the spirit that seals our salvation. He guarantees it, and that guarantee is strong. There's nothing more secure than what God guards. Some of the stories that we love to hear is about right people being somewhere at the right time. You know, think about your plumber is just a street away when perps bite, when pipes burst, excuse me, they're right around the corner. The doctor is being present when a medical emergency takes place. The firefighter is being close by when a fire breaks out. And in such scenarios, the people with the needed skill set were present to administer aid. When we consider the security we have in God, we always have the right person present with us. And the takeaway here is very simple. God is our refuge. No, he is with us. God is our refuge. No, he is with us. I hope you're encouraged and comforted by that fact, that God is not far away. He's right here. And he's with us through every high and low. Well, let's turn to our final verses of this passage. And in this final section, we encounter a bunch of imperatives. You know, if you were confused at all as to what you were supposed to do in light of Psalm 46, verses 8 and 10 make it pretty clear what the applications are. Let's start looking at verse 8. The beginning of verse 8 says, Come, behold the works of the Lord. And with those two commands, come and behold, the reader is summoned right, to witness God's work. He's telling his readers, you have to see this. And what is that work? Let's continue reading. He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The imagery here is striking. Wars are ended. Bows are broken. Spears are shattered. Chariots are burned. The instruments of destruction are themselves brought to destruction. In a word, the work of God is peace on earth. And who else can bring wars to end? Who else can eliminate every means of violence? Not us. I think that's why the imperatives are simply to come and watch. We're not the ones who accomplish this. God's people are not responsible for bringing about this cosmic peace, something that God alone will accomplish. 
So when it comes to bringing about this universal peace, the application we hear is just to grab a seat and to watch, to witness what God will accomplish. It brings us to our final verses. Look at these 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You know, these next pair of imperatives naturally follow the first. And what's interesting about these is they're not only directed to the reader as an invitation to experience peace. They're also directed to a turbulent, warring world. This is an observation that scholars pointed out I found helpful. And they look at the context of verses 8 and 9, which, as we just read, depicts a world full of bows, spears, and destruction. It's not a it's not a peaceful place. You know, some translations attempt to bring this out in verse 10, for example. Uh, the CSB will say, stop fighting and know that I am God. Of course, in addition to God's words being directed to a warring world, his words are also uh, an imperative to us and to the reader. Not only will God bring about peace in the world, he, he wants us to know peace. And to double down on what was said in verse 8, to instruct the reader that this work of bringing comprehensive peace to every corner of the world, that's not up to us. Be still. Be still. Know that God is God. We are not. He will make it happen. And when he does, he will be exalted by every nation. Every corner of the world will know peace and will respond with praise. Of course, much like before, it's much easier said than done. Now, I guess for many of us, we are better at being restless than still. But when I hear this command to be still, what comes to mind is this hilarious trend I saw a while back uh, where parents would seat their toddlers at the dinner table, set some candy in front of them, but told them you can't eat it until mom and dad comes back. And of course, the parents set up a phone or something to record their reactions, and the parents would just leave. And, oh man, these videos, if you haven't seen them, they're hilarious, okay? Some kids would just touch the candy, right? Lean on the table, sniff it, see what kind of colors there are. Other kids would be so wound up, they'd be swaying on their chair with this crazy look on their eyes, this candy. Now, there's a clip where some kids are just, as soon as mom leaves, they just start crying, they're weeping, like they want the candy right now. Uh, there's another where siblings are yelling at each other not to eat the candy, and of course, there's some of those who just, as soon as mom leaves, candy's gone. They eat it up. <laughs> and we can, we can act like those kids when it comes to handing over our security to God. You know, being still is hard work. But it's what God calls us to do. Again, this ultimate security where we no longer know wars, where there's no threats, is something God alone will bring about. God alone will bring it about. So in keeping with the other takeaways, this one's also simple. You know, God is our refuge. Behold his work and be still. Before I close, we need to consider this psalm through the cross. You know, in Christ, we can have greater confidence that God is our refuge. Because through Jesus, God demonstrates to us that in order to give us ultimate security, he had to pay the ultimate sacrifice. When Jesus goes to the cross, 
God displays how far he will go to bring about that everlasting life and peace. And when he rises from the dead, Jesus proves himself to be an unrivaled fortress that sin and death could not topple. As Peter says in his first sermon, God raised Jesus up from the grave, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Just last month, the church lost a great pastor and scholar in Tim Keller, if you didn't know. And in one of his final interviews he gave, he said something so obvious and so plain, but it struck a chord in me when I heard it. He said, if Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, was seen by hundreds of people, talked to them, if he was raised from the dead, then you know what? Everything's going to be all right. Whatever you're worried about right now, whatever you're afraid of, everything is actually going to be okay. Because you have to remember, we're not just talking about a resurrected people. We are talking about a resurrected world. If God is your fortress, if Christ is your Savior, then no matter how difficult things get, it's going to be okay. And it's not a cliche to say that. God, God's got it. So don't seek shelter in anyone else or anything else. And by that I mean don't seek ultimate security in anything other than Jesus. He is our refuge and strength, and he will carry us to the end.